Hi, Chris. How are you? I am excellent. And that is not a lie, unlike some days. <laughs> it looks like the, the sun is shining. No, the sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar <laughs> that tomorrow. It is actually gray AF, has been raining nonstop here. And I think we've got a nice cold front coming in. Ooh, fun. How about you? You know, it has been actually very pleasant today. I think that we just had that big weather front come through and make it all rainy and gross. A lot of people are really depressed because Baltimore has not gotten any snow. It's like, it's February 1st and we don't have any snow. There have been articles about it, people decrying climate change for ruining the magic of winter. It's a, it's a sad situation. So you've got the seasonal affect disorder people are upset because it's winter. And then the non-seasonal affect disorder people are upset because there's not enough snow. Yeah, just a bad situation all around. I'm right now going like, it's unseasonably cold down here. But it is winter. So I'll complain only a little bit. (laughs) And then brag about my greenhouse that's sprouting. Oh, that sounds so great. I know, I was just in it last night, bra- uh, bragging on TikTok as it rained on me. Amazing. all my little seedlings. Do you have um, any cool new plants? I have a bunch of heirloom stuff. Nothing's popped yet. Uh, I have a plant that my wife planted that she couldn't remember what it was called, so we call it Tall Witch Flower. I'm waiting to see if that <laughs> pops up and what that will be. I'm trying to gr- raise a, trying to germinate a coffee bean so I can grow a coffee Ooh. bush. Hasn't worked yet, but uh, yeah, no. We, we introduced on the last episode a new talent, that we're, a new question we're going to ask all of our guests, and we should be prepared to have our own talent. So the HBA, HBA talent show, maybe I'll show people how to make a greenhouse from pallets and plastic so they too can germinate plants in the middle of winter, exorcise their seasonal affect this depression. I love that. I think that's a great talent, and I feel like you would have many people in the HBA's all over that. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that would be really practical, too. Uh, as we talk, I'm looking for a transition in our statements. We haven't found it yet, so let's just hard well, transition. Wait. Yeah, we can, ha- we can hard transition. I was going to say, well, it's exciting that we have a new guest on because we can ask them what their talent will be, but we'll wait for the end of the interview. Yeah, um, and we actually sent the question to give, give, give the guest time. So who is the guest? So today we'll be talking to Alicia DeLuise. Alicia is a PhD candidate in biological anthropology with previous experience in psychology, oncology, and translational research. She specializes in global health, human evolutionary biology, and applied statistics. Her research focuses on the evolutionary and environmental underpinnings of physiological systems, including aging, metabolism, the immune system, cancer, and other chronic diseases. And we will be talking about her really great cancer paper uh, in this episode, hopefully. Uh, By taking a multidisciplinary approach, she uses anthropology, biology, health sciences, psychology, and epidemiology to understand health and disease at the microbiological, personal, and population levels. Uh, Right now, very exciting, she is currently the study coordinator for the World Health Organization's World Health Survey Plus, and she's worked closely with their study on global aging and health uh, and adult health, which is also called SAGE. And here she focuses on population-based collection and analysis of minimally invasive biomarkers. And 
unsurprising, she has published a really great piece in this minimally invasive biomarker special issue. Uh, and we'll talk to her a little bit more about where she can you can learn more about her work, but let's first get her on. Yeah, Alicia, why don't you come on in? And, and I, while she's uh, warming up her Zoom machine, I'll, I'll note, this isn't actually her most recent publication. We're going to ask her about that, too. But um, I've talked a little bit about this on previous episodes. We're trying to we're trying to be more concerted about highlighting stuff in the in the journal that we're podcast for and and amplify those and see if it actually has an impact. So we're doing a little we're creating data to later be collected as we talk right now. Hey, Alicia. Great. I love the creation of data, so I'm all about it. Hi, how are you? We're great. And and I wanted to say I, I can tell because I went looking through your uh, research gate uh, that's linked in your bio and and it all and you have cranked out a shit ton. That's the scientific terminology <laughs> of really interesting stuff that you're synthesizing a lot of big data and looking at health issues and a lot of different health issues. So um, you've been really, really active and you know, we've been Twitter friends for a while and interacted on Twitter, but it wasn't until the recent AAAs that, I, 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 that we, we got to talk much. We probably met, and I'm terrible face name recognizer, so I apologize if you've introduced yourself to me before, because I have a terrible habit of reintroducing myself. I'm gonna, um, it's a great I'm, habit, Chris, a great habit, because no, no, everyone I, should always be introduced all the time. Well, I, I'm gonna, I, but my wife is better at it. She calls everyone buddy. So you I never know that. if she can't remember your name or not. You're just her friend. Yeah, I think I actually started following you so I can make sure to get dog pictures. <gasps> oh. <laughs> and then eventually we got to know each other and science came into play. But really, it was all about the dogs. Well, I could. <laughs> yeah, we could we could we could digress hard and fast talking about dogs. <laughs> Malika, you got dogs? I have two cats. Oh, uh, well, I know. So you are a good Kara replacement because Kara always had a, <laughs> cats literally on her face trying to yes. like press the buttons on her, on the podcast when we interview. I mean, I mean, I take these podcasts from my lab space, and I did try really hard to get a lab cat. We are in a vestibular lab, after all, and cats have incredible vestibular systems, and so that was the argument I made. It was unfortunately not successful. I don't have a lab dog. I don't have an office dog, but my son's an artist and he screen printed, made this. Oh uh, my God. Screen. So listeners, I'm showing a screen print of my Husky that my son, um, the artist made. And I have framed one for home and one for uh, the office. That's pretty I cool. love it. So Alicia, thanks for joining us. We always start off the same. We, the sausage of science is about how the sausage is made, but how the science is made. But we always want to start off by knowing sort of the, the predispositions that lead the scientists down that road to the science. So, and actually what I really want to know is where people are from and stuff. People always start at college, but go back. We want to know more about you. Like, where are you from? Where are you now? What got you interested in anthropology? And then uh, t- tell us where you are now and, and who you're working with and what you're working on. Yeah, so originally I was born in Northern California, but when I was about 10, my parents moved to Woodland Park, Colorado. So that's where I spent a lot of time growing up. It's a really small town and the base of the Rocky Mountains. Um, so a higher elevation kind of mountain town. 
Uh, that's where I went to school. And a lot of the students there really weren't on a track to go to college. Neither of my parents have bachelor's degrees and neither of my siblings pursued college either. So it even just going to college, like that was my dream. That was my goal. There was nothing beyond that. I didn't think like, oh, I'm going to college to be a scientist or a doctor. It was just, I really want to go to college. So yeah, I worked to make that happen. And I went to a local school, University of Colorado in Colorado Springs. So that's about 30 minutes outside of the town where I went to high school. I loved it so much. I ended up completing two uh, bachelor's of science degrees, which is probably more so just because I didn't realize that I was on an academic path and wanted more degrees and what to do, but I have one in um, both psychology and biology. And at that point, I still really wasn't looking or thinking about grad school. I wanted to be able to make some money and stabilize after grad school or after undergrad. And it wasn't until my last quarter, I took a senior seminar in cognitive evolution. The teacher really grabbed onto some of my ideas, Dr. Fred Coolidge. I really enjoyed developing this really wonderful theory on dopaminergic expansion and homo erectus and developing a paper around that. I ended up presenting it at a couple of conferences. And at this point, it was in my very last quarter, so it was too late to kind of create a whole new plan to go to grad school. So I went forward with my original plan, which was to try and earn money after school. And An I excellent a, choice. Yeah. <laughs> and so I got a job doing cancer clinical research and continued to work with Dr. Coolidge on the human evolution work throughout that time. Can you really quickly tell me what dopaminergic expansion homo erectus is? I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, so there are a number of traits that show up in the human uh, uh, lineage with homo erectus, included things like handedness, long distance running, increased sociality, and all of these things are actually controlled by the dopaminergic neuronal system. So neurons that excrete and use dopamine for activation. And there's also some evidence comparatively that we have a higher proportion of dopaminergic innervation compared to serotonergic innervation compared to some of the other primates that are closest to us. So I think that this was actually like a divergence point and part of what made Homo erectus different and gave them more abilities could have been this neuronal expansion. That's so cool. And I'll, I'll be hitting you up afterward because that maps right on to some of the self-soothing stuff and fireside relaxation research and the evolution of cooperation around fires that my art. team's been working on art uh, for a thousand years, it seems like. Yep. So, um, yeah, no, for sure. I got really into cave art around then, too. And I know that. Oh, fantastic. I mean, OK, uh, digression, but keep going. So so after that. Yeah, so I continued to work with him and he convinced me to come back and get my master's with him at Colorado Springs. So I did that in cognitive evolution. And that's where I really started loving statistics. Being in a psychological science master's program, I had a lot of statistical support and statistical resources. And I was able to kind of learn that and bring that into anthropology, which doesn't have as long of a his history with statistics as other disciplines. Oh, I, can I ask potentially controversial question? Of course, I love those. 
Okay, what is your favorite statistical software that you use? Oh, this is a good one. I use R and it's my favorite and I will argue for that. I do understand why some people would like a point and click based system. And I think that mm -hmm. as long as you're doing it in a reproducible way and still saving the code, then that can be okay for people who are scared or like unsure about going into coding. So basically I think that statistics should be accessible to everyone. If you want to do it in Excel, then you freaking do it in Excel. If you want to do it in SPSS, <laughs> then you go, you do your stats in SPSS. And also, I think that R is the most versatile tool for me yes. to be able to do everything that I need to do in all of these different modeling capacities. Malika, what's your favorite? Oof. Okay. So personally, I love R, but I started learning R as a late graduate student. So my R skills are cobbled together, if you will. But I came out of the Stata, the Stata camp. I'm uh, uh, coming from a lineage of scholars that all use Stata. And then I came out of graduate school and realized that no one else uses Stata. Literally no one uses Stata. A lot of um, economists use Stata, actually. And Stata oh. has other multi-level modeling functions than even are at this point. So I do still sometimes go into Stata and use their functions. I don't want to skip ahead if there's more of the story, but you're you're at University of Oregon with Josh Snodgrass mm -hmm. Lab. So yeah, what so brought this you there? Is the story of actually what got me interested in anthropology, right? We're all the way. I have a master's now, and I'm pretty old, and I'm still wasn't in anthropology yet. But um, what I had done is I applied to a bunch of different programs, and I applied to cognitive archaeology programs. I applied to neuronal evolution programs. So like psych of stuff and neuronal F stuff. And then I applied to bioamp programs. And every bioamp program I applied to accepted me and none of the other ones did. So I have <laughs> no idea that I was going to be an anthropologist, but other people really realized that that's where I needed to be. And I definitely think that they're right. Out of all those fields, anthropology is my absolute favorite. And part of that is because I get to bring in all of these disparate ideas from different fields and unite them under these kind of paradigms of evolution and sociocultural determinants that we're so good at exploring. So a lot of our listeners are grad students or undergrads who will be applying to grad school and I'm on grad committee. So I have a sort of sense of like what your application might have looked like. And I probably would have accepted you in a heartbeat, too, because that, that, the synergy that you're describing is exactly what we would be looking for in my department. But I wonder if you have any insights or got any feedback or know why, uh, if that was like why, why these neuroscience programs or these other programs didn't see the same. I don't know. Breath. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that that's absolutely it, is that this discipline values breadth in a way that other disciplines really don't. They're very narrow. A lot of times they're working with model organisms, and I didn't have that experience necessarily. I had really worked with human populations, which is something that anthropologists do a little bit more of um, than those other groups. Even though I was really interested in cognitive evolution, BioAmp allowed me to bring in also the cancer research and the bio research and really unite everything under kind of one umbrella. And I think my application showed that that would happen in a way that I didn't realize fit in with the discipline so well. And so for all of the people out there that are 
big thinkers and uh, have been told that the, you are interested in too many things. BioAnth is a home for you. Definitely, yes. <laughs> What's your dissertation project? Yeah, my dissertation project is actually on the evolution and physiological basis of aging. I've proposed a theory of aging that is based on trade-offs between cellular hyperactivity or a cell's propensity to take up nutrients from the environment and use it and a cell's risk of cancer, which progresses throughout the normal development of a cell. This, I think, is a really great segue to the article that we are really excited about, the minimally invasive uh, biomarker special issue. Uh, the article is titled Current and Future Applications of Biomarkers in Samples Collected Through Minimally Invasive Methods for Cancer Medicine and Population-Based Research. So I'm curious, like, did this article uh, come out of your dissertation work? I'm, did, they, did they feed into each other? How did you how did you come up with the idea to work on this specifically? It sounds like your your trajectory has kind of brought you here. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that while I do integrate a lot of these cancer-based ideas into my dissertation, that this paper is a little bit different in that kind of my motivation here was to utilize some of the tools that I knew were in clinical cancer medicine from my experience there and show that there was really overlapping methods with what biological anthropologists do. And also our field hasn't really dug into cancer that much. There are a few people who've definitely done so, but our perspective is so useful because so many cancers have sociocultural determinants Cancer is an evolutionary disorder that's present in all multicellular eukaryote. It's really interesting and it has a lot of potential for us to gain insights that could be really helpful. And we don't have to start from scratch. Some of those tools have already been created in the clinical field and all we need to do is apply them and build off of them in order to really utilize them better in population-based medicine because beyond cancer and its treatment are very high income nation centric because it takes such big machines and expensive diagnostics and labs and pathologists to be able to diagnose cancer and then even more resources and money to be able to treat it. We just don't see diagnosis happening in rural or low income or other populations that just don't have access to these things. And yet it is one of our biggest health issues. So we really need to expand our perspective and start looking at these things in diverse groups to start to maybe get a grip on this huge thing that we've been trying to get a grip on for a really long time. So as a recently turned 50-year-old, I have an impending appointment for a colonoscopy, an incredibly invasive appointment that I can tell you I'm so excited about. I have been avoiding this for years, right? <laughs> it's super invasive because it's a, one, it's a, it's invasive, two, it's for cancer detection, and it scares the shit out of me, right? So I'm in a industrial, I'm in a weird economy, right? I'm white, educated, industrial, rich, democratic, and I have the access to all this, and yet I avoid it. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to the sociocultural dynamics that 
influence cancer and who the populations, like what are the peoples of, of the world out there who may need more access to opportunities that I'm avoiding, but don't even have them or, or so, some of those dynamics. So it's funny that you mention your colon cancer testing because that definitely you have your mindset on that, it seems like. So you should definitely go in and get that done. But one of the minimally invasive biomarkers that I highlight in this paper actually is Cologuard, which is a minimally invasive test for colorectal cancer. And while it's not as effective as going in and getting the colonoscopy that's more invasive, if you were so against the colonoscopy that you weren't going to do it anyway because you didn't care about your cancer risk that much, then Cologuard becomes a good option for you. Yeah. So, and then I think that even though some of these things have more or less diagnostic quality, I'm actually kind of excited about the potential of rolling out some of the ones that haven't been approved by the FDA and have less diagnostic quality because you don't really need that in a population-based study. These tests don't need to work quite as well to be able to get population-based estimates. And also, if you're getting a population-based estimate, it's easier to take into account things like what percentage of this might be due to cystitis instead of cancer by just like giving some extra biomarkers or questions in a way that you really can't with some of the other tests. Can I ask really quickly for those of us who are not in the know with the colonoscopy testing, what is the minimally invasive biomarker? And like, what about it makes it much more compelling than going into the doctor's office? Yeah, so it is a minimally invasive biomarker based on a feces sample. Um, so you just collect your poop in a little cup and you scoop it and they do, you can do either ELISA or PCR, or actually there's both an ELISA component and a PCR component. So you collect your samples and just mail in this kit. You can do it at home. They'll run those tests for you and give you your results. We had the opportunity to interview Athena Ectopus about her book, The Cheating Cell. And I'm aging, so it's conscious. Like I'm, I'm conscious about it, right? So in talking to you now, I see the obvious link between your th these two areas of research. And as an as an old old person, it it resonates with me. But so, but for younger listeners, right? It's not obvious. Like cancers happen to people all the time, not necessarily old people. But here's the thing, though: aging also happens to you all the time, not just to old people. And so I think that's something really important to develop, to consider, because, for example, one of the cancers that we see as being really popular in children is leukemias. And we know that white mm -hmm. blood cells are going to turn around a lot throughout the whole lifespan. It doesn't have to do with like an, an older adult or like a growth phase. And so sometimes the cells in our body are used at different rates in such a way that they actually are aged even in a younger person. And so I think that that's part of kind of what's going on here. You mentioned Athena Actipiece's work, uh, which I absolutely love and kind of got me down this path in the first place, because I realized that not only do all multicellular organisms have cancer, they also all age, right? Mm -hmm. And so it seems like this aging is also a limitation based on this transition from multicellularity to multicellularity. And in addition to being able to divide as much as possible and that being really good for a single-celled organism because it's reproductive success, just divide, 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 
It's also super useful for those cells to take up as much nutrients as they can in their environment and to utilize it in whatever ways it needs to, whether that's uh, chemotaxis, moving around, cell signaling, or re cell reproduction. And so both of these processes we actually see in aging as well. We see a lot of hyperactivity in aging where the cells take up too much energy in their environments, and then they produce things that aren't really needed, such as inflammation, which mm -hmm. then leads to a lot of aging-related disorders. And then the other side to that is you can get rid of this hyperactivity in a cell or a cell taking up too much energy and doing too much by splitting it into two cells and having cell division. However, every single time a cell divides, it increases the mutational load, which increases cancer risk. And so this is one oh. of the reasons why cells eventually stop dividing. This is called cellular senescence because their mutational load gets too high. And then a cell that can't divide anymore is basically in a permanently hyperactive state. That's a great explanation. Thank you. Malika. My question is to just rewind a little bit and think through, you know, we talked about, we talked about the colonoscopy option for minimally invasive biomarkers. Thinking through how we get people to actually do these biomarkers, both from a clinician, researcher, scientist standpoint, but also from a subject standpoint. I'm curious to know what are the different options that are out there and you detail them in your in your um in your paper here, but I'm also curious to know your opinions on these yeah. various different biomarkers. No, actually, I love that question because I think that one of the main things that makes cancer so daunting to study and makes researchers stay away from it is the fact that we've grouped them under this weird umbrella called cancer. When cancer is not a disease, every type of cancer is a disease and cancers is just a type like a grouping of a bunch of diseases. So for example, you can do kind of the same thing with some chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension. They're totally different diseases, but they have similar causes, but you're not that you don't have to measure the other one if you're going to measure one, right? Like just measuring diabetes is enough, just mark measuring cardiovascular disease is enough. And the same is true with all these different types of cancers. Just measuring urine cancers or uterine cancers is enough. Just measuring colon cancers and colorectal cancers is enough. Sure, it's great if you can get a wide swath of cancers or if you want to get at total cancer rates. Those are great goals, but they also aren't very realistic. Just like trying to get at every single chronic disease in one study isn't realistic. And so I think that really understanding that one population might have problems with a certain cancer because of their environments and just targeting that one specific type of cancer in certain populations could be deeply beneficial. That's that's really interesting. And I'm thinking so and I want to I want to put a pin in a point you made earlier as we were thinking about this, because I'm thinking about me myself and my age and your correction is we're all aging all the time. So we're all accumulating mutational load and it's probably going to vary from cancer to cancer and cell type to cell type when that load manifests and, and maybe it could at, at any time. But it's it's basically kind of like, you know, we use the word load with allostatic load too. So, so sort of an accumulation 
of deviations from the quote unquote norm. And is that is there is that I'm metaphor? I'm going to push against that a little bit because okay. I think that that's the general view behind how aging needs to work because that's how degrade, things degrade in our environment so often. But really, aging is biological dysregulation. And biological dysregulation can come from both under and over activity. And it doesn't necessarily need to be due to damage. It could just be dysregulation. And so it's really easy to, like I noticed you honed in on the mutational load part because that is the part where there is a little bit of damage accumulating. And we really want that to be it, right? Because that's kind of our model of how things deteriorate over time. But I think that there's more going on with aging where it's not all deterioration over time. And that's what makes it so complex and really hard to think about in some instances. And that's kind I of the like activity piece where overactivity also leads to this aging dysregulation. I feel like I, I would love to get weird and like talk a little bit about immortality and cancer risk and immortality if their aging was like not an issue, but we oh, can save that for a happy hour. <laughs> I'll touch on it really quickly because it is interesting. And when I went into this work, I just assumed that aging is this inherent thing. I was going to learn about it. And actually, the more and more I've learned about aging, I don't think that it's inherent at all. I think that it's due to limitations with how evolution occurs and that if evolution hadn't occurred on the same trajectories or in the same ways, then maybe we wouldn't have as widespread aging as we do. So that was a really interesting perspective that I actually didn't really get to until I really started looking at the evolution of aging. Wait, can we can we talk about this a little bit more? I know it deviates from from the article, but I am fascinated. So, like, is this specific to human evolution or no, no. evolution in, on Earth? Mm -hmm. All cells, okay. all eukaryotic cells have a lot of the cellular mechanisms and cellular pathways in them that lead to aging in humans and other organisms. They're very central pathways, and because they're so central to energy and reproduction at a cellular level, they couldn't be changed entirely, right? They could only be tinkered with and things could be added on top of them, but they couldn't, evolution couldn't start over at any point when we became multicellular. And so all of these limitations from these pathways that were in cells before we became multicellular lead to a lot of these outcomes that we think are inherent in life but really might just be due to this evolutionary transition to multicellularity and the limitations that came with that specific transition here on Earth. Which yes, I know you're into the space thing. So yeah, maybe it would like evolve totally yes. different somewhere else. Yes. Oh yes. my gosh. This is it's so an exciting. Earth thing. Aging so cool. is an Earth thing. It's an Earth thing. <laughs> Uh, you're blowing our minds a little bit, and we thank you for that, because that's why we bring people on the podcast. So I, this is not a transition at all, because this is, is, is central to your work. So you actually have a more recent publication called, uh, you're, uh, you're an author on, uh, called Anemia and Socioeconomic Status Among Older Adults in the Study of Aging, Global Aging and Adult Health. So the project's called SAGE. I wonder if you could tell us more about that project, and then why study anemia in aging? 
Yeah, so the study on global aging and adult health is a World Health Organization study that tried to get as many countries as possible to do a longitudinal aging study of adults age 50 and older. And the real purpose behind that is that there's this huge demographic shift happening in which the older adult population is getting bigger. And we know that that's going to cause problems in terms of we don't have the systems and the capacity and the support necessary to deal with this demographic shift. And so a lot of people are really interested in what causes aging related diseases and how to prevent them and how to better take care of, of this really big and growing population of older adults on the planet. And this specific paper about anemia, I really like it because a lot of times diseases and because of the way statistics work, we attribute diseases to individual level predictors. So anemia is due to lack of dietary iron, bad diet, alcohol use, smoking use. You might've heard some of these things. And what we did was we hypothesized that actually it's probably not like the individual level factors that are creating anemia, but more community level factors. So whether you have access to a grocery store, whether you have access to a doctor's clinic. And so we did a multi-level model where we were able to control for the community level clustering in anemia. And what we found was that anywhere between 10 to 60% of the populations in these different sage countries had 10 to 60% of the variance in anemia was due to the community level clustering. And a lot of the individual wow. level SESC effects were moderated by that community level clustering. So what that means is that SES at an individual level doesn't really lead to anemia as much as the SES of your community level, which makes a lot of sense wow. because it's at that community level that's going to be able to provide clinics and uh, grocery stores, access to food, things like that. And also, if your population is particularly marginalized, perhaps your hunting grounds have been deforested lately. These are population level structural effects that lead to this disease. And so actually, we just did a follow-up study on it too, where we looked at this in a wider population, not only older adults in Tunisia, and the grouping in Tunisia was crazy. You'll see these results at the conference coming up, but one of the, actually my student, Nayantara Aurora is the first author on this, uh, which is great. And what we found was that 86% of the variance in anemia in Tunisia was due to community level clustering, which I had wow. to recheck the stats on the code on this like a million times because I couldn't believe it but I swear there's nothing wrong. It just is that high. And the other thing that we found in Tunisia is that this community level clustering actually moderating individual level effects. So whether alcohol or smoking is a risk factor for anemia is gonna depend on where you live. So cool and so anthropological, it makes me so happy. <laughs> I mean, the results are are sad, but but the perspective I think is really fantastic. I, but I don't understand, and and I understand conceptually, but I don't understand what the mechanism might be between the population level cluster and and influencing individual use of alcohol or cigarettes. Is it 
no, cultural taboo or? I don't think it's use. The use rates are fairly um, consistent across all of the populations. I think that if you are wealthy and you have resources and you live in an area that has resources, then you can smoke and drink a lot and it's just not going to affect you as much as someone who doesn't have those resources and lives in a different environment. I think that that's what's going on here. Wow, that is fascinating. Really fascinating. So that's combining SES, but not like you said, not just at the individual, but SES in context. Definitely. Yeah. And then we're also seeing too, that this is breaking out at different levels. So some of this variance is also going to be due to like a state or district level. We've mostly been looking at the city levels, but looking at other levels, even country levels, like federal laws, how that's affecting this stuff is really interesting too. And also creates some methodological and statistical challenges, which is always fun. Wow. That's incredible. So we mentioned this at the beginning when we were talking about your bio, you are currently a coordinator for the World Health Survey Plus. And so are you bringing, I mean, these perspectives as anthropologists, we are, are core to what we do and the way that you're operationalizing them with the statistics is amazing. So is, is this something that you get to do in your current role? Yes, that's actually kind of why I was brought into SAGE, and that's what led to this WHS study. And so the World Health Survey was a survey that was launched in 68 countries to get health data for countries to be able to understand what they needed to do in terms of policies and prevention at a country level. Um, They're nationally representative, so you take the uh, census from all of the people and you start with that and start selecting down. So big nation level studies. And what the plus is that we're adding on to the WHS is the minimally invasive biomarker portion, which I'm so excited about because what we learned with SAGE when we did collect some minimally invasive biomarkers in these population-based studies is that when you do that and you get this biological data, you realize that we are underestimating illness in our rates so much, it's wild. And in some places, this is very patterned because there's a lot of inequality in certain countries. And so if only data is being taken from uh, urban areas, you really aren't gonna get the full extent of health problems or even suffering that exists in a country. And so by really taking this nationally representative sample and then adding on these biological samples to where we can actually diagnose diseases and people who don't have access to care or diagnostics is first off helpful for the individuals because they get their data right away. It's all point of care testing. So they will all receive testing, some of which might not have happened before with recommendations based on their values. Also, we're gonna get a way better perspective of health and disease in these countries. So you basically have explained this the answer to this next question because it sounds like you have so much work that you're doing and like a ton of momentum, but I'll ask it anyway. After we see you in Reno and you tell us th- about these data, what's what's next for you in your career and when will you be on the market so I can get people to hire you? 
I was just, that was actually going to be my answer for sure. I am going on the market. I'm going on the market in the fall. Um, so we'll, we'll see how that plays out, but I'm definitely aiming for academia at this point. I have backup plans case it doesn't work, but I really have my heart set on one of our lucky listeners out there. Hopefully if you're <laughs> interested enough to send me a job offer in the fall. That'd be great. Well, it sounds like any department who is lucky, lucky enough to hire you will be in good hands. <laughs> Thanks. You're so great. And so, okay, I, I think this is the potentially most important question. I, you know, I, I, I am biased. I will admit my own bias here. But Chris and I, over the, you know, as, as I have become a guest, a guest addition to this podcast, we had a great idea of resurrecting the HBA talent show. And we decided that what we should be doing is slowly recruiting folks to, to participate in said talent show at the Human Biology Association. Maybe we can get the larger AABA community to participate. Well, who knows? We'll see. But if you had to perform a talent at the dinner, at the HBAs, what would you do? Yeah, see, the problem with this question is that I'm just not very talented. <laughs> <laughs> you could do statistics that would be amazing oh, yeah, totally get up there do some statistics I could get up there and um do some jewelry making again boring but uh something that I like to do but actually my best friend in this program Tian Walker she loves to dance and does all the TikTok dances and stuff and she always tries to get me to do them when she comes over on like Friday nights and we're hanging out and I never do like oh my god no like get out of here with that like why are you even saying this but I think that if this were to happen she would approach me with a plan for a dance and I would definitely have to say yes so that would be it I think <laughs> I, I love it it would be awesome. I also would love to, I, I, if you were listening at the intro, my talent would be teaching people how to germinate a fucking seed. So, I you know. That, that definitely gave me more ideas. I was like, wow, we're going real broad here. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it, it, I mean, my talent may not be like really compelling to watch, but it's a talent show. You didn't say I, it's an entertainment show. I'm showing exactly. off my talent. So there we go. I'm, you know, it's, there you go. Oh, I have talents. They're just not entertaining. We'll, and, and, and frankly, I think a lot of us would really love to watch crafts and how people make jewelry. Oh and we're a bunch of nerds. So we, we would all oh, find that fascinating. Alicia, man, you are really, really impressive. You're great fun to talk to. And I love we just learned so much here that that we had no idea we were going to learn. So Good luck on the market. We'll have you back on the show for sure because you've got a lot of projects going on and thank you. That sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. This has been an absolute blast and I just really appreciate your support. Of course. And where can folks find you if they want to get more information about you and your work? Um, so actually, this is kind of an interesting story. I don't know if I can throw a story here on the end, but I changed my last name to my mom's maiden name from Davis, which is my dad's last name. And one of the reasons why I did that was because there were like 4 million publications under A.M. Davis and there were zero under A.M. Deloise, the way that I spell it. 
So actually, because I went through all of the effort of changing my name, you can probably just type Deloise into Google and it will bring up my <laughs> research gate and my website at the University of Oregon. I think that's Perfect. brilliant. I love that you, so many of us academics are like, oh, I don't even, and no offense to anyone who said this, Paula, I don't even remember <laughs> my, my, my Twitter handle. <laughs> Uh, because we we don't use it all that much, but we're trying to engage the public with some really amazing science, and I think it's important that folks learn about what you're doing. So I appreciate that you have made that effort. Yeah, no, definitely. And yeah, my Twitter Twitter handle and everything else is very boring. Am Deloise, so you can definitely find me there. <laughs> and what Perfect. about you, Malika? Are you findable out there yes, in the can, social media you, world? Indeed, you can find me on Twitter. Um, I also recently downloaded Mastodon and Post. I have not been able to find anyone on Mastodon or Post. So if you are anybody who is science related or a friend or actually any, anyone in general, find me, please, because I'm lost. But all my handles are the same. You can find me at SkyMall, and that would be S-K-Y-Y underscore M-A-L. And you can find uh, stuff about the podcast at Hume bio associates on twitter the human biology association just if you if you google it there's probably a lot of other permutations i'm at chris underscore ly on twitter cheat sweet don't ask on a bunch of other things and yeah i'm sure i'll get a lot of follows roll eyes thank you alicia we will talk to you in reno sounds great see you then yep see you soon